Good morning and welcome to Green Lake Church. We're so glad to have you here today, those of you who are in person and online. We have a few announcements today that I'll draw your attention to in our bulletin. First, I want to have a little happy announcement, which is that the women's restroom is now working. A special thanks to Greg Fields. So if you see him, please thank him. Um, you'll notice the lights that are right here that are very large. They are most more than likely temporary, but please note that there are lots more cords on the ground. And this is for a recital that's happening this weekend. So just be aware of the cords on the ground. Try not to trip. Um, we're having a block party. I've told you about this a few times, but we have a little more information. And you're going to get an email this coming week with even more information. And it will have a link for you to sign up. And what it's called is the block party. And we will be starting at the Meridian House, coming through to the Lake House, coming through to the Fireside Room. And then we'll join Terry outside for the Pathway of Lights. And we'll have food and refreshments, and it's a time to, to fundraise and to see what the ministry is in these new houses. And so we're looking for people to sign up for that, but we're also looking for people to sign up to volunteer to help Terry under the tent for Pathway of Lights. So if you're interested in that, please contact Terry Smith-Weller. Is Brian here? Well, Brian Carley had an announcement about, the, about uh, the Thanksgiving toy drive. This is what we're doing this year for Thanksgiving instead of the traditional Ronald McDonald house. So we'll be having a toy drive. You can, there's a bin in the back that you can put them in and more to come about that. And the last announcement I have is that December's potluck has been changed to the first week. So it will be December 2nd. And with that, I invite you to please stand and greet one another and pass the peace.
announcement about the toy drive than I can give, Brian Carley. Happy Sabbath, church family. Yeah. Just wanted to make a quick announcement about our toy drive that we're collecting toys for. I brought a stuffed animal up here with me. Um, Next week is the last week to give for the Mockingbird um, support family group. So this Mockingbird, if you haven't read about it, there's more information in the bulletin, but it goes to support um, foster families, and they're going to be having a kind of a Christmas shopping um, event coming up here in a few weeks. So we're helping them collect toys, and all those toys are going to go for the foster kids to come and pick, and they'll get to kind of pretend like they're shopping and pick out toys that they like. If you're interested in giving toys, we have a bin in the back. And if you're not sure what toy to buy or, um, or don't have the chance to go shopping, you're welcome to send gift cards or bring gift cards. We'll be collecting those in the back. We have a bin. Or if you'd like to make a cash donation, if you put that in the envelope, we can, we'll also accept those as well if you just write it on there for Mockingbird Project, and we can make sure that those go to their, um, their toy drive. So thank you so much for your generosity. So remember, this Sabbath and next Sabbath are the last two that we're collecting toys. Thank you. Bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being in this space. We thank you for opportunities like toy drives and singing and the different ministries that we have in this church. We pray a special blessing over those who are leading those things and that you would renew their strength and that you would renew all of our strengths. In your name we pray, amen. Happy Sabbath. This offering of this week goes to the local church ministry. And as we know, everyone in this world has a budget, even the little ones. So we as a church also have a budget of all the needs that we know. So in this time, it's time just to give generosity with just the intention that all of the blessings that we have received, we can show God uh, thankful heart. Let's pray now. Dear God, now that we're going to give the offering to you as a thankful heart, with thankful hearts, please guide us to just support our church in every single way that we can do it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Good morning. Wow, look at this crowd. This is a special Sabbath. This we call Thanksgiving Sabbath. Do you know Thanksgiving is one of my very favorite holidays for lots of reasons. One, because I love all the colors, and I love the pumpkins and the leaves and all the beautiful things, but also because my dad was born on Thanksgiving, as was Helen Gouju. I don't know if it was Thanksgiving Day the day she was born, but it's the 27th, and sometimes that is Thanksgiving Day. And then someone else was born on Thanksgiving Day. Who is that someone else in the... Who is it? Sweetie Pie. Who's Sweetie Pie? Sweetie Pie. It's a dog. My parents' dog was born on my dad's birthday. That made that dog even more special to our family. My dad ended up getting a diagnosis of cancer, and he had not been able to go out of the house very much, but he was living pretty happily and getting up and getting dressed one day, and my sister watched him putting his socks on. And Sweetie Pie went everywhere my dad went. Can you see where Sweetie Pie is sitting? Where is he sitting? Right on my dad's shoulder. So my dad's putting his socks on, and he's going through what he's thankful for. And this is something my family did every Thanksgiving, but we would do it every time we'd have a prayer together. We'd go around and we'd say what we're thankful for, and my dad said, I'm thankful for that tree out the window. It's my favorite tree. I just love that tree. And then he said, sweetie pie, I am thankful for the apple pie somebody dropped off at the house. This is such a delicious apple pie. Oh, and I'm thankful for my eyesight so I can see all these things. But especially, I'm thankful for my spiritual eyesight. And my sister is hearing this from the other room, knowing that my dad doesn't know that Sweetie Pie's getting a lesson on being grateful. Well, it's just the way my family was. But one of the things that I love about church is that we get to use our spiritual eyesight. And one of the ways that Green Lake Church sort of includes a lot of people in this, is that we have divisions. Have you ever heard about divisions? Is anybody here, maybe your dad is the outreach division chair, or maybe you've heard of the administration chair? Well, I happen to be part of the nurture team. And the nurture team, we have things on our committees like the greeters. Does somebody greet you when you come into church and hand you a bulletin? That's somebody that's on our nurture team. Has anybody here ever seen a baptism? And then who makes sure that they have that robe and all the things that they need? That's somebody that's a deaconess. And deaconesses get to do the most fun project of the year. We just love it. You just missed it down in the kitchen. Wasn't it fun, Ellen? And we get to make these Thanksgiving baskets. And every year they get a little more heavy. And some of you helped me out. Do you remember? Um, some people made drawings. Other people made airplanes because those are important to have too. But these are gifts that are going to some of the most interesting people. People who used to come to this church all the time. But we don't get to see them much anymore. 
And I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Put your hand up if you think you know who this person is. Who just turned 101 years old? Mr. Nicewanger. Mr. Nicewanger. Not very many people know somebody that's 101. I'm impressed. Um, hmm. When it was COVID, do you guys remember going and singing to people and somebody had a beautiful, huge garden and you got to go down in that garden? Do you remember what you got when you visited that garden? It, her name is Ruth Christensen. Do you remember what she gave you? It was fun memory. And wasn't that the most beautiful garden? And she gave you stickers with the name. Oh, that's cool. So that helps remember. Does anybody know Lowell Dunstan? What did Lowell Dunstan do for a living? Do you remember? Well, I'm going to tell you. He was a teacher. He happened to teach me as a freshman in Union, oh, well, at Lincoln, um, Nebraska. So, and he was many, many years at Cypress School. I have to tell you about somebody else. Somebody else who came to this church for many years with her pastor husband, Roger Ferris. He loved trains. But do you know what Ida Ferris did? She was an expert roller skater. So just because you see somebody walking with a cane doesn't mean they don't have many other gifts. So when you see some of these people, you have to ask them a question or two. They're very interesting people that we're lucky to serve. And I'm so grateful that all of you get to help out in being part of Green Lake Church. Thank you. You get to collect the blue buckets.
I'm a firm believer that prayer fixes everything, but the most important is that connect you with God and give you peace. So now let's do a prayer for, thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for giving us peace and come all together here to listen your words. Bless Pastor Kevin and bless every one of us that are here and the one that are watching us. Also, we want to pray, your God, that you can just pass your healing hands over Dorothy, Russell, Chidualas, Vary, Anne, Jody, Erling, Aileen, Nietzsche, Kaylin, Donna, and Ken. Be with them, God. And in this day and this week that is coming, be with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Happy Sabbath. The Old Testament reading is from Psalm chapter 56, verse 8. You keep track of all of my sorrows. You have collected all of my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book.
The New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 5, verses 43-44. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Given what's happening in the world and locally, May the Lord bless the hearing and understanding of the word. One of my favorite passages of scripture comes from our Old Testament reading today. It speaks of the experience that God has for us, the care that God has for us in the trials that we go through. It says that he knows our pain. He takes even our tears and places them in his bottle. The reason that this is significant for me To me, it speaks of an emotionally intelligent God, a God who has empathy for the challenges that we go through. Sometimes we can't even put into words the feelings, the challenges, the hardships that we've experienced. But in this passage, 
It's as if the tears themselves are a witness, a testimony to the hardships and experiences that make us, us. Similarly, in the New Testament, we read that Jesus has compassion, love, empathy, sympathy, understanding for us. And I want to put it on the screen the way that this is explained in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at it first from the New King James Version and then see a slight difference in the New International Version. This is Hebrews chapter 4. And if I can, we'll put it up on the screen here now. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Quick pause before we go to the NIV translation. We have here, speaking of God, somebody that understands our pain, our hardship, and he can sympathize with us in that. Because of this, we are told we don't have to approach the throne of grace timidly. We can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Now notice this. The underlined word that I had from the New King James Version was the word sympathize. And now we're going to see a slight transition as we look in the NIV translation. If we can put this up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. And let's put it up on the screen now if we can. My clicker might be just a little bit slow or something. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Okay, hold on one second. If you have your Bibles on your phone, you can look in the inter inter New International Version. But this time we have, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help us in our time of need. So the two words, of course, sympathize and empathize. These words are interconnected, but there is a difference, right? I know that most of you will know this, but let's just briefly go at a dictionary definition of empathy and sympathy. Sympathy is feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. Feelings of uh, sorrow and pity for someone else's misfortune. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Interconnected, but different. And... I'm highlighting this in part because as Bible translators make choices, they are doing the best they can to put words of the time of Jesus into our own language, context, and culture. And it's important to compare Scripture with Scripture because of that. It's not a perfect science. We do the best that we can. But some people make a really big deal about which word choice is used. For instance... There is a group of people, this guy's name is Joe Rigney and Doug Wilson, I've talked about them before, but they make the point that empathy itself can be a sin. Have you ever heard this before? Empathy can be a sin. Now, the reason that this just came up again within our 
context of this last two weeks is because Joe Rigney got on Twitter and he was calling again that empathy is a sin. Why? Because actually one of my friends that I knew from the time that I was in Idaho, her name was Emily Dye, she um, has become more vocal about some of her experiences. It turns out when she was going to the school that Doug Wilson had in Moscow, it's called Logo School, she was groomed by a 50-year-old professor, and she was just in her teen years. But Joe made the point, when this relationship happened, she was 18, and he tried to say that she was responsible, in part, for what happened to her. They made the point that because of a culture of empathy, there's a society now that's not having the certain people, like, like Emily, responsible for their side of it. Now, just in case you're worried of where I'm coming from, I think that is absolutely ridiculous. Emily, when she was just 14, 15, didn't ask to be groomed by this teacher. Empathy for what happened to Emily is not a sin. In fact, I think it's what makes us more human, and it gives us the ability to hold to account people that would prey upon an innocent person like this. Now, to give it a little bit more texture, though, um, these people are not stupid. <laughs> they have theological rationalizations for where they are coming from. And I want to share just a little bit of where Joe Rigney comes from when he makes the point that empathy is a sin. He says, empathy is the sort of thing that you've got someone drowning or they're in quicksand and they're sinking. And what empathy wants to do is jump into the quicksand with them, both feet. And it feels like that's going to be more loving because they're going to feel like, I'm glad that you're here with me in the quicksand. Problem is, you're both now sinking. Sympathy, on the other hand, stays safely on the dry land. The rescuer instead might say, I'm going to keep one foot on the shore and I'm actually going to grab onto this big branch and then I'll step one foot in there with you and try to pull you out. That's sympathy and that's actually helpful. But to the person who's in there, it can feel like you're judging me. So he's making the point that empathy can make us blind to the ability to actually help somebody out. Be in the, the dry land, because of our feelings, we so associate with them that we become part of the problem that they have. And he says, that's dangerous and deadly. If that's what happens, because of our empathy, that we leave safe ground and jump in, I would agree with him. But I would push back a little bit on this because I think empathy, from an emotional intelligent perspective, is not totally associating with the feelings of the other. It's understanding that they have these feelings. From that place, instead of judging them, and, and here's the pushback, you notice at the end he says, but to the person who's in there, it can feel like you're judging me. If we come from a place of superiority, if we come from a place of lack of curiosity, but judgmentalism, then that person that's asking for help and we say, yeah, but you should, you know, you should really go to church. If you read your Bible, if, if you pray more, then maybe you wouldn't be depressed. It's giving suggestions 
before you understand perhaps the challenges that somebody's going through. So if you're having the experience of somebody that's not curious, to, curious enough to understand your feelings, then it can feel like judging. Brene Brown puts it like this. She says, empathy fuels connection, sympathy drives disconnection. I don't necessarily totally agree with that. I think there's a place for sympathy. I think there's a place for empathy. But if sympathy comes from pity, oh, that's too bad, but you know you should really do this, then that drives disconnection, right? A thing that I've said repeatedly as a pastor here is to be curious, not judgmental. If our starting point is judgment, then whatever we have that might be legitimate help like going to church, finding community, reading the Bible, when we have relationship and the person that we want to have relationship understands that we care, then perhaps they'll be open to suggestions that might help them out of the struggle that they're in. But if we start there, it drives disconnection. But just in case you think that I'm picking on Joe Rigney and Doug Wilson, and that this idea that empathy is maybe not the best is totally crazy, I want you to realize there is a psychologist from Yale University who also has written against empathy. It is okay to give a thoughtful critique from the standpoint if empathy turns off our rational brain and makes us so compassionate to somebody that's in a challenging situation, that could be potentially bad. So Paul Bloom, psychologist from Yale, wrote a book called Against Empathy, and he says this, the idea I'll explore is that the act of feeling what you think others are feeling, whatever one chooses to call this, is different from being compassionate, from being kind, and most of all from being good. From a moral standpoint, we're better off without it. Does that surprise you? Here you have uh, a teacher, PhD from Yale, who's saying maybe empathy isn't the greatest of things. Kind of agreeing with what Joe Rigney is saying here. He continues, empathy is a spotlight that has a narrow focus, one that shines most brightly on those we love and gets dim for those who are strange or different or frightening. I want to slow down here for a second. This is the point of the series that I'm doing right now. This series called Courageous Empathy. If you remember, the way that I started in the series was talking about people that went countercultural. There was a Palestinian professor who had empathy for the enemy and that was seen as an act of betrayal. He took his students, Palestinian students, to Auschwitz. And that act, of trying to understand the experience of the other was seen as an act of betrayal by the side that he was on. On the other end, I highlighted an Israeli soldier who started to question, is what I'm doing here on the, the Palestinian-Israeli border, is that making our country safe? And he, and he highlighted in a blog some experiences that made him question some of this, and that act of empathy was seen as an act of betrayal by the side that he was on. I am not advocating just for empathy by itself. There has to be a courageous component for 
the political other, for the religious other, not just for people that share your experience, tribe, and identity, but for people that would argue differently. Can you have an empathy to step into their shoes? That is what I'm advocating for. And it's from this place that I think Brene Brown comes from as well. But before I go to Brene Brown, one more thought. This comes from a theologian, Scott McKnight. And he says, lack of empathy characterizes narcissism. I expect in the diminishment of empathy, one will encounter someone who wants to control rather than be sidetracked by someone else's emotions, feelings, and lived experiences. Scott pushing back specifically on Joe Rigney and Doug Wilson, who says empathy is a sin. He's noticing in high controlling churches, maybe we could even use the word cult-like churches, there's an aspect to want to control people that would push against the grain. How would you in your right mind call somebody like Emily Dye, for instance, who says, yeah, I was groomed by this older teacher and I'm not responsible that I had a relationship with him. When you say that I also like am guilty in this, no. But a controlling leader who wants to say like, no, like let's not point the spotlight at our own fallibility, they would say, no, like you also played a role in this and the empathy for this quote unquote, that they say victim, is making us lose that rationality. Scott McKnight pushes back on that and says, no, normal human beings don't speak like this. Have empathy for those that have been hurt in high controlling churches. That's the point that he's making. Brene Brown agrees when she says, oh, sorry, I'm skipping a little bit too fast. This is a really important point. This is the highlight passage Jesus, this is the whole point of this series as well. When Jesus comes along and he says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, he's speaking of courageous empathy here. This is the way that the world operates. Yes, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Jesus says, no, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is countercultural. It's not the way that the world works. We love our family, we love our tribe, and paint the other as completely ridiculous and out of touch. Jesus says this is not the way to move the needle. It means that we have to see things, experience things, from the angle of the other, step into their shoes. Brene Brown says, empathy is the birthplace of love and compassion, and it's the path to connection. Here's how I understand how these words interconnect. Pity, the, the, the statement of I feel sorry for you, is sort of a starting point. Like when we see something horrible happen in the world, whether it's to an Israeli or Jewish, Republican, Democrat, our side or the other, when something horrible happens to them, it's good that we'd feel pity. If we so harden our heart that we say, yeah, good, that's a, that's a danger sign that we might have some work to do. From pity, you get to sympathy. I feel for you. Then you can get to empathy. I, I feel with you. I maybe didn't have that exact experience, but I know what it's been like to be labeled by my own side. 
I know what it's like to speak for good and have that misunderstood. My experience isn't exactly like your experience, but I have empathy for you. And that ultimately can lead to compassion. I am here to help. One of my friends on Facebook, a licensed counselor, was responding as well to this sin of empathy idea. And by the way, the internet can be a little bit snarky, but I, I get it at the same time. When these pastors were saying that empathy is a sin, people started to make shirts that said, empathy is my favorite sin. And they got these mugs, empathy is my favorite sin. And one of the people, this licensed counselor, is responding to this idea that this focus on empathy as being this horrible, bad thing, had this to say. Yes, allowing ourselves to experience empathy can make us more vulnerable to gasp the influence of those who think differently than we do. If one lives in a perpetual state of spiritual hypervigilance or fear of potentially being wrong, one might consequently come to see empathy as a threat. I have seen this in high-controlled religious environments. I have seen this in even places that aren't so high-controlling, but the worry, what if we don't get this exactly right? What if in the attempt to follow the good that we know, we get it wrong and we get to judgment day and God will damn us for that? It makes people afraid of being too kind to people that are on the other side, people that are part of the the sin group, because our association with them might contaminate us in some way. A person that I think speaks really thoughtfully of this is Megan Phelps Roper. I've mentioned her a while back. I think this book is perhaps the favorite book that I've read this year. It didn't come out this year, but she tells her experience of breaking away from the West Barrow Baptist Church, and this was and is an extreme hate group. They're the ones that will hold signs, God hates fags. They will protest funerals and do it all in the name of God. It's extreme. But hearing from Megan Phelps Roper, her grandpa was a lawyer, the one that started the West Barrow Baptist Church, intelligent, thoughtful, actually on the front lines of the civil rights issue. So it's, it's almost, you, you wonder, like, how did it go this way? Her mother, also super thoughtful, lawyer, intelligent, and Megan loved her family. She loved her church, and it was not easy for her to ultimately break away. She has a TED Talk where she speaks about what ultimately helped her break away from the Westboro Baptist Church. And what she says here, I think, can apply across the board. Whether you're religious or not religious, if you want to be thoughtful, empathetic, loving, compassionate, and kind, we would do well to listen to what Megan says here. So I'm going to play just a clip of this and then end with four points that she makes about how, into, about how to break through from the polarized times that we live in. So here's the clip now, if I can play it. We celebrate tolerance and diversity more than at any other time in memory, and still we grow more and more divided. We want good things, justice, equality, freedom, dignity, prosperity, 
but the path we've chosen looks so much like the one I walked away from four years ago. We've broken the world into us and them, only emerging from our bunkers long enough to lob rhetorical grenades at the other camp. We write off half the country as out-of-touch liberal elites or racist, misogynist bullies. No nuance, no complexity, no humanity. Even when someone does call for empathy and understanding for the other side, the conversation nearly always devolves into a debate about who deserves more empathy. And just as I learned to do, we routinely refuse to acknowledge the flaws in our positions or the merits in our opponents. Compromise is anathema. We even target people on our own side when they dare to question the party line. This path has brought us cruel sniping, deepening polarization, and even outbreaks of violence. I remember this path. It will not take us where we want to go. What gives me hope is that we can do something about this. The good news is that it's simple, and the bad news is that it's hard. We have to talk and listen to people we disagree with. It's hard because we often can't fathom how the other side came to their positions. It's hard because righteous indignation, that sense of certainty that ours is the right side, is so seductive. It's hard because it means extending empathy and compassion to people who show us hostility and contempt. The impulse to respond in kind is so tempting. But that isn't who we want to be. We can resist. gives four points, and I want to briefly go over them with you now about how to bridge this divide with empathy. Point number one, don't assume bad intent. In the tribalistic times that we live in, this is what we do. We paint the other with just a broad brush. But if you think in an introspective way, even in your own life, of a time that perhaps you changed your opinion, if the person assumed bad intent about you, I think it's almost impossible that that would be the person to change your mind. In my own experience, as I've shifted positions on things, I won't name names, but there was this prominent Adventist conspiratorial theorist that I was totally supportive of. And I remember being online in the forums on Spectrum. This was back when, I, it was probably 2010 or so. And I defended this person. And I said, you know, this is the person that has it right. And the Bible says we are to be neither hot nor cold. And this sort of compromised medium position is, is, is not good. But I had people on there that I think saw me as sincere. And because they saw me as sincere, they were generous, and it was the generous people that treated me with respect, even as I was saying things that if I look back now, I, and I would see it, I'm like, man, that was crazy. But I know I was honest then. And so the people that didn't assume bad intent about where I was was the thing that helped me make the next steps. Number one, don't assume bad intent. Number two, ask questions. Like I said earlier, be curious, not judgmental. Did you know that Jesus, in the course of his ministry, was asked over 198 questions? He directly answered only maybe eight? It's almost as if, if we 
look through the, the lens of the Bible and what Jesus was having us learn, it wasn't about theological certainty as much as it was about the curiosity of relationship and making growth and next steps within our spiritual journey. As we ask questions and assume good intent about people, we'll hear answers. And that might make us curious. They might ask questions. And this is the stuff of dialogue and relationship. If we come from a standpoint of judgment, I have this right, learn from me, there's not an opportunity to truly help grow together. Number three, stay calm. Now, this should be basic human 101 stuff, but if you've watched presidential debates within the last, you know, 10 years, it's not always modeled for us, is it? Megan Phelps says this was one of the most important things within helping her transition out of the cult that she was in. She was on Twitter, and one of the things that she was against was Jew, Jewish people. She had signs that Jewish people would burn in hell. But one of the first people that helped her out of it was a Jewish man. And over the course of time, as they dialogued on Twitter, there was a respectful calmness. Even as she was saying, God will kill you because you're a Jew, the guy was more curious than judgmental with that, and he started to get more like, where are you coming from? Why do you think that? And he showed up at one of her protests as she's holding literally a sign that says God hates Jews, and he brought her um, some sort of Jewish delicacy, and she gave him some chocolate. All the while, she's holding this sign, God hates Jews, but the ability to stay calm and look beneath the surface was really helpful for her. The final one, Make the argument. There comes a point when these other steps are there that you will have an opportunity to share why you believe what you believe. Don't just assume that it's so obvious that everybody should somehow intuitively know it. I'm a Republican because, I'm a Democrat because, isn't it obvious? There comes a point in the course of conversation as you have generosity, humility, empathy, and love where you can say, I believe this because... And if it's true and good, and it's obvious that you believe it, and the other person maybe should believe it too, when you make the argument, it's possible that they will come alongside. And if they've been in a cult, if they've been in an abusive relationship, if they're believing something toxic, when those other steps are used in uh, conjunction, you can help get people out of a challenge. Here's the way that it looks in real life. The comedian Sarah Silverman has intentionally tried to engage people with this sort of empathy that I'm talking about. But because she's a comedian and because she has a lot of material out there that sometimes has been sort of snide and rude, people will sometimes say rude, snide comments on her social media feed. One person that did this was a man by the name of uh, Jeremy Jamarazzi. And he called her a bad word and just kind of went off. And instead of responding back, you know, this is like the, the playground style. You call me ugly, I'll call you stinky. You know, goes on and on and off the rails. Sarah got curious. She said, it sounds to me like you might be in a lot of pain. Tell me some more. 
He immediately changed his tone. He sort of apologized and said, yeah, I'm sorry, that was kind of rude. I, you know, honestly, I've had a really, really bad couple of years, and I have some back pain. She got curious again. Tell me some more. She learned about his childhood, about how he was abused, and about how he has this back pain that was making it so that he couldn't even go to work. She used her network to raise money for Jeremy. He got back surgery, and the GoFundMe account ended up with so much money that he had left over that he paid it forward to other people that were experiencing pain. All because she didn't respond with abuse for abuse. She got curious. She had empathy, and it was transformational. Sarah Silverman also talks about the danger of cancel culture. This has been in vogue in our, our culture right now, but here's what I mean by it. Here's what Sarah Silverman means by it. Sometimes you can go back in your past, let's say 15 years ago, and maybe you did something. Maybe you dressed up a certain way or you, in your college years, made a statement online. That can be pulled up now in the political age in the age of employment, as you can look through anything that anybody did, and you can point out this person is bad, this person is bigoted, racist, whatever it is, because here's the evidence. But sometimes that moment in time doesn't represent the essence of who we are. And it's dangerous to paint in such a wide brushstroke to make everything that comes next dependent on that moment in time. So she she cautions against this sort of righteousness that doesn't allow growth. And as an example, she gives a man by the name of Christian Percolini. Now, that's a great shirt, Make Empathy Great Again. But when he was 18 years old, Christian would not have been caught dead in a shirt like that. He was the leader of a white nationalist group. He had a band that was all about hate. He actually showed up at Auschwitz with a Hell Hitler salute, and he has pictures of this. He had rage. And why? Because when he was going through troubles as a teen, the group that he found connection with was hate groups. It was the gang, the tribe that he found community, and he went to where he experienced the love. This is true of all of us. We go to where the love is, even if it's not genuine, even if it's not good, and Christian thought this was the path. Now, you can look at the videos, you can look at the songs, you could see the picture of him saluting Hell Hitler while at Auschwitz and think, this guy is irredeemable. Stay away. Don't give him a chance. But he had a teacher in high school a black man that was curious and not judgmental, and he was consistently kind to Christian. It was these sorts of acts that compiled over time that made Christian realize, maybe I am not on the right path. Maybe I shouldn't be saluting Hitler with Confederate flag in the background. And a picture of his friend, his teacher, that had empathy for Christian, now makes it so that Christian goes around the country speaking about the danger of hate groups, speaking about how it can happen to anybody that they can gather into a group like this 
because hate can be seductive if you are surrounded by a community that accepts you. Courageous empathy breaks the tribalism. It transcends these lines, and it follows the words of Jesus. And I'm going to put it again on the screen. This has been the highlight text for us in the series, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is my biblical worldview. I see things through the lens that Jesus spoke of, and it is not easy. This is what makes this a courageous act. You will find... And I've already seen, sometimes as you reach out and speak up for the enemy, the response will be like, what, you endorse them? You believe what they believe? And of course, this isn't the case. It's the case that you are trying to love, to be empathetic, to extend an olive branch, to offer a path forward in a world that totally cancels after one mistake. And there needs to be boundaries. There is right and wrong, but beware of the seductiveness of the righteous mind. Beware of the sin of certainty that says, I have it right, my side has it right, and everybody else has it wrong. Be curious, not judgmental. Lean into empathy and love your neighbor and your enemy through the power of God. Amen.
Pray with me. Dear God in heaven, fill us with a measure, an abundance of your love, kindness, mercy, and then give us the ability to pass that on with the measure that we have been given, may we give. Give us the courage to love well. Fill us with compassion and kindness. And may we know that as we seek you first, we have nothing to be afraid of. Help us to be uniters and peacemakers and follow the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Mm -hmm.